Oh, wait, here we go. There, now you're very small. (laughs) (laughs) And now on this week's. (laughs) All right. All right. Welcome to the Geek and Review, a podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. So Marlene, coming up later in the episode, we have a talk with two big law partners about their experiences on teaching others the realities of bias and stereotypes towards women in the workplace. So Andy Kramer and Al Harris also discussed their new book with us, and it's called It's Not You, It's the Workplace. And we had an absolutely fantastic discussion with them. Yeah, we certainly did, Greg. We also had someone take us up on last episode's request to share stories from what your family thinks it is you do. The listener emailed us and said, when I got my first law library management job, my older brother said something about it being a glorified file clerk's position. I know. (laughs) With him being a political science professor, he should have known better. Yeah, he should have known better on that. I bet uh, that made for an interesting Thanksgiving dinner that year. Yeah, no discussion about politics, religion, or librarians. That's the rule. Amen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, if you have a story to share about what it is your family thinks it is you do all day, (laughs) please share it with us by leaving either a voicemail at 713-487-7270 or by emailing us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to share your story in an upcoming episode. And now for this week's Information Inspiration. We have a nice long interview this week, Greg, so we're keeping the inspiration short and sweet. Right, Greg? Well, that's the plan. We'll see if we can stick to it. So let me jump in. My inspiration this week ties directly into our discussion with Andy and Al. And that is the American Lawyer column from Vivia Chen titled, Hashtag Me Too Backlash Is Not Going Away. So Marlene, we all know the Mike Pence rule, right? Right. All right. So for those living under a rock the past couple of years, it turns out that our vice president has a rule that he will not be in a meeting where he is alone with a female and that he won't attend social meetings where alcohol is served unless his wife is accompanying him. Chen points out that the Pence rule is having an effect on the workplace. And since 2016, the amount of men who are reluctant to do things like hire attractive women or hire women for positions where there involves some type of interpersonal interaction like travel, both of those are on the rise. So I don't know. That's, to quote, yeah, yeah, that's just terrible. It is. It's just so, terrible. To quote Chen, she says, it's 2019. It's freaking unbelievable. <laughs> Good quote. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. So the rise in the number of men restricting their access to women in the workplace is also happening in the legal field. Working Mother Magazine and the ABA did a survey which came back with a similar result. 56% of men said they were nervous or uncomfortable having one-on-one interactions with women in the workplace. Fifty-six percent, Marlene. Jeez. I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. It gives me a headache. So, mm-hmm. All right. We'll talk more about this with Andy and Al in our interview, but I have to say that while I'm not particularly shocked by this, as my mom says, I'm highly disappointed in you. 
So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So come on, fellas. Uh, you know, it, it's 2019. It's freaking unbelievable. That's right. That's right. Well, my inspiration uh, has to do with a new survey that's out of in-house legal departments. The 2018 Gartner State of the Legal Function Survey examined features of cost-effective legal departments whose spending was in the lowest quartile of their peer group while managing a similar volume and portfolio of work. The Gartner survey of 140 in-house legal departments found that the most effective devote almost twice the budget to training and development than their higher cost peers. Hmm. The study found that the most cost-effective legal departments spend a little over 2% more of their in-house budget on training and development compared to higher cost peers who spend about 1%. The survey found that cost-effective legal departments also devote about 8% more of their total budgets to in-house staff salaries, training, information technology systems, and software compared with their higher cost peers. The researchers concluded that investing in training helped increase productivity while not increasing headcount and led to a decrease in spending on expert or outside support. So what does this mean for law firms? Well, Michael Mayfield, the research director in Gartner's legal and compliance practice, said in a statement, legal departments have a tendency to hand off complex work to outside counsel, but organizations can achieve significant cost savings by bringing this work in-house. He added, the rate for an in-house attorney is likely going to be significantly less than what outside counsel will build. So lesson learned, invest in your people and your tech. Hmm. All right, Marlene, we stuck to our rules this week, and that is enough for this week's Information Inspiration. Well, I cannot tell you how excited I am to get into this week's interview. Andy Kramer and Al Harris were so interesting uh, to talk to, and the discussion brought in a wide range of emotions, I think, for, for all of us, Marlene. Yeah, they, they absolutely did, and Andy and Al were fantastic. What I particularly appreciated is they really didn't shy away from the tough questions. No, they did not. So, <laughs> um, And I, I, I would be very interesting to listen to how our audience reacts to this. So let's jump on in and listen to what they have to say. We are very excited to have Andrea, Andy Kramer, and Alton, Al Harris, as our guests today. Both are practicing partners in big law. Andy and Al speak and write extensively on gender bias in the workplace. And if you don't believe me, check out their website, andyandal.com. In fact, they have a brand new book hot off the press entitled, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias that Built It. Welcome, welcome to both of you. It's a real treat to have you at our Garage Podcast. Yes, it is. Well, we're very pleased to be here. Thank you for having us. Hey, Andy, before we begin, I did want to mention that I'm good friends with uh, Jen Berman, a law librarian at your firm, and I understand that uh, she helped you out with the uh, pulling this book together. She did. She's a great friend and has been a big help. So hello, Jen. All right. Yeah. She says to say hello and that she's very happy that the book is out. Yep, we are too. You two are like the uh, dynamic duo. You're, you're big law partners. You're, you have multiple recognitions for your work in women's initiatives, speakers and co-authors of the award-winning book, Breaking Through Bias, Communication Techniques for Women to Succeed at Work. So 
tell us a little bit about the journey to that space. What, what's, what was the catalyst that made you choose this path? Well, I served on um, my firm's management committee and compensation committee. And what I found immediately on the compensation committee was that women would write about the, in their self-evaluations about the teams that they were on and wouldn't claim their accomplishments, basically. And yet the men were very happy to write about, talk about how wonderful they were and how valuable they were to the whole enterprise. Uh, You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know who is going to make more money in that situation. And so the very first thing that I started to do in the gender space publicly was to write about self-evaluation do's and don'ts about things that women needed to do to own their own accomplishments, basically. And uh, that was the that's that was the start of the writing, speaking, and sort of researching that we've been doing. Very interesting. You know, I I read a report. I think it was last year or the year before that stated that one of the biggest correlations between women lawyers and compensation is the number of women that are actually on the compensation committee. There's there's no question about it. In fact, we can see a statistical difference if women move from two to three on the compensation committee. Uh, It makes the difference. Three seems to be at least the minimum that needs to be there in order for there to be a noticeable change. There is no question but that uh, when we get more women into senior leadership, the women underneath them do much better. How important do you think it is to your brand that your messages are complementary but not exactly the same? How does that make you unique among the many discussing gender diversity? And, you know, Al, specifically for you, it can be very uncomfortable for men to include themselves in this type of conversation. So how important is it for men to be involved in this discussion? Well, (laughs) in one word, very. Let me just give you one example. I was at a conference last year put on by the American Bar Association, but it was on uh, women in power, and it was a mixed group of men and women uh, being led by a woman. And one of the questions she asked, this this great big room full of people, said, how many women have been in a meeting in which they are the only woman? And, oh, you know, most of the women's hands went up. And then she said, well, how many men have been in a meeting in which they're the only man? And mine was the only hand that went up. (laughs) Of course, her response was, well, of course, that's Al Harris. Right, right. (laughs) So, but why is it important? And if men feel uncomfortable in those situations, they simply need to get over it. We can talk about that in a minute. But why is it important? Because men are in control. They are the dominant power source in virtually all major organizations. They are at the top. And because they are, they create around them a culture of masculine norms, values, and expectations so that they are very comfortable in the world that they are leading and that they create. Well, if women are going to succeed in those workplaces, those men, those men at the top, needs to be actively engaged in recognizing that something needs to be done in terms of bringing women up. And the problem at the moment is that most of those men 
do not realize that. Most of those men, if you ask them, honestly believe deep in their heart that their organizations are pure meritocracies, that women have just as much of a chance to get to the top as a man do, and that if women don't, it's because they don't want to or because they'd rather be home with their children or because they're less ambitious or because they just don't have the right stuff. Well, we need to get those men out of that particular bubble and into the real world where they recognize that the world ain't fair and they need to be part of the reason or the way that it's going to get fixed. Well said. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that's perfectly said. And I want to follow up because you were talking about, you know, how – how do men become more comfortable, you know, in this this type of conversation? Particularly, I think since since Me Too, um, a lot of people have been very afraid to, you know, to even bring up the topic because they, you know, they don't they're afraid that that what they say will be, you know, taken in the wrong way. Well, one of the problems is that for men who are of good good intentions, uh, the reality is that it's an opportunity to have a conversation. And unfortunately, there's a lot of men who aren't comfortable interacting with women in the first place who are able to hide behind the Me Too kind of banner saying, well, I'm afraid that I'm just not going to get it right, so I don't want to I'm going to not have a meal with a woman. I'm not going to mentor her. I'm not going to sponsor her. And so, unfortunately, that's the wrong response and that we really do need to have more conversations and less excuses, frankly. Let's not attribute completely, you know, improper motives to the man. A lot of men, particularly at the senior level of these organizations, something over 70% of those men, executives in major organizations, have women, have wives who don't work outside the home. They are used to women being caregivers, being support to them, being able to allow them to go about their business without concern for domestic concerns or childcare. And so women who are in their organizations who are displaying characteristics that are very unlike their wives are foreign to them. They are simply uncomfortable with them. And we need to find ways to make them comfortable. And one of my messages is the only way you're going to get comfortable is to do it, that we need to find ways that bring men and women into contact working together, uh, mentoring each other, finding ways to work together. And there are ways that that can be done, but it requires some effort. And we talk about things that can be done in that regard. Just to follow up on Marlene's question, when the two of you are in the, in the room together, you kind of pack a one-two punch. Andy, what, what is it that you bring to the conversation and then Al, what is it that, that you bring? How do you affect the audience differently? Well, interestingly, I'm going to probably do it backwards, which is that what I bring is all of the experiences and the 
the life experiences that come along with having uh, been a lawyer for as many years as I have. But what I find is that I like to work with Al because when I, if I try to say to one of the, say to the men, they don't get it, they don't understand what the issue is, then their eyes roll up into the back of their heads. And so what I find is that I like to have Al along because he can do the dirty work and let them know that there's work that needs to be done and that there's some a role in it for them. It's um, you know you hate to confer the gender biases, but a male voice is often far more authoritative than a female voice. That people pay more attention when a man says exactly the same thing that a woman has said. Uh, that shows up in meetings, it shows up in public discourse, it shows up in these kinds of training sessions. And so what Andy and I have found is that by combining our perspectives, by both being there, from speaking from two different points of view, we can get far more engagement from everyone in the room. It's not just that the men pay more attention, but the women are paying more attention when they see a man and a woman speaking together, agreeing, being supportive of one another, and trying to do something creative together Mm -hmm. so that they are able to see that when men and women work as a team, the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. Yeah, so it's not a, a you problem or a me problem. It's a our problem, and we should work on it together. Absolutely yes. right. Yep. One of the topics that, that you cover is how since the, you know, the hashtag MeToo movement, organizations have over-focused on actionable harassment and discriminatory discriminatory behaviors when they also need to focus on the more subtle behaviors if they really are committed to eliminating gender bias in the workplace. Can you tell us just a little bit about the spectrum of behaviors and how even the little things undermine the best intentions? Absolutely. Actually, we wrote an an article for um, the Harvard Business Review uh, on this subject where the top, the title is something like, if you want to know how your workers feel about harassment, just ask them. And what we found, of course, that's an, an anathema for attorneys to suggest that you actually ask people what it is that they, for the problems that they have. But basically what we found is that there's a spectrum that organizations that have gender bias in them, that tolerate gender bias, have more uh, sexual misconduct. And organizations that have tolerate incivility have more sexual misconduct. And so the reality is that there's a whole spectrum of behaviors that if an organization is prepared to let certain things slip through, then the rest of it becomes more likely. Not that it's a a given, but that that's a key part of what is going on. And so by trying to worry about a workplace culture and trying to do something and learning about it becomes a very valuable tool in overcoming these problems. We don't want to minimize in any way the problem of harassment or sexual assault. I mean, those are really horrifying and very serious. But far more common 
way, way more common in our organizations are the assertion of male dominance through sexual means, off-color jokes, crude language, stares, comments about women's appearance, anything that they can use that is an assertion of power designed to put the women down, to minimize their importance in the context of the workplace. Those are uh, very debilitating to the women to be not just one time, but to face that kind of behavior and language on a continual basis is spirit breaking. And we need to find ways to make certain that organizations don't allow that kind of assertion of sexual dominance to exist. Because men use that kind of sexual dominance not in an effort to entice these women into having sexual relations with them. They use it in order to assert power. And they are the crudest way, but they are an effective way of maintaining male power. Well, let me ask you this. Do firms need to have some kind of, say, quasi-broken window policy where they really crack down on the small behaviors in order to eliminate the big behaviors? Yes. But when you say firms, very often it's difficult for the organizations to do it. What we need to do is create a culture within organizations in which if there's a man who's behaving inappropriately, there is another man who will call him on it. That there is a recognition on the part of people generally that this is unacceptable so that when it occurs, there is a call out, there is a put down, there is a criticism. There is a way that that is shown to be unacceptable. And when you have an organization that has that sort of a culture, you will end it. Right. And the culture has to be that the men on the ground are comfortable and expected to step up at, at that point. And instead, like when I said the, the firm, in air quotes, uh, needs to do it, then that tends to let people off the hook and say, well, it's not my job. We have, you know, we have a committee that enforces this. Right. And, and it turns out that if somebody does do something inappropriate, an off-color joke or that kind of uh, sort of sexual dominance. It's, it, as Al said, it's, it's about power. It's not about sex. But it's way too much to expect that the women who are being subjected to this are going to be the ones who call out the behavior. Um, that doesn't mean they can't. But very often what they have to do is they have to find a way to get that person aside one-on-one and then bring up the conversation. You can't do it on the spot because at that point, then the man who was trying to assert power in the first place is trying to save face, and then he's got it out for her. Gotcha. Um, and that's really why you need a you need an ally, and that's whether it's another man or it's another woman. But a lot of times, men will say to us, "I'm uncomfortable in those situations too, but I don't know what to do about it." And so that's really Al's point about that it needs to be a culture where 
that sort of behavior is not accepted. And that's that's where I'm going to jump in and say, you know, that the, the organization does have some responsibility, particularly in that regard, and sort of putting, you know, may having a culture where it is safe to do those things, to to talk to people that way, to, you know, have those conversations. And, you know, also to not basically put people in situations where, the potential is greater. I mean, I know there's a lot of discussion about now about um, events and, and alcohol and having open door policies and things like that. Do you feel that, that organizations can, can do more or, you know, do other things that, that would sort of help that, you know, promote that culture? Uh, yes. I think there are a couple of things that they can do. One, the problem very often is that the people who assert and dominance, who are doing things wrong, are often very powerful people. They're often people who are the biggest producers or the largest client getters or the senior senior managers. Therefore, there is a reluctance to call them out or to discipline them. All we have to do is look at Uh, the recent revelations, whether it's at the Weinstein companies or at Fox News or CBS, that the the powerful men just don't get called on their behavior. And so the organization can do a great deal by making certain that retaliation cannot happen, that if somebody complains, is harassed, is put down, that their complaints are listened to and there can be no retribution against them. That's the first thing that needs to be done. But the organizations can also put in policies. Uh, You mentioned open doors. Our concern is not that open doors are a bad thing, but that when we call attention to special kinds of arrangements when women are present, we are likely to create discriminatory situations where men are comfortable with another man in their office with the door shut, but not with a woman in their office with the door shut. Well, if the door is shut because the conversation is private, because it's tricky, because it involves uh, important vulnerabilities, well, maybe the door ought to be shut. And What we need to keep our eye on is that men's relationships with other men and men's relationships with women need to be on the same footing. They need to be handled in the same way. And so one of the things, for example, is that organizations need to be making certain that men are responsible for mentoring and and supporting women's careers And that way, then, it's not, oh, look what's going on. Greg has got, um, uh, is having lunch with Marlene, you know, the, the, you know, we better start gossiping about it. But Greg's got a responsibility to be working with Marlene on a project or or mentoring or vice versa. And so uh, that's really a key part of it as well. Yeah, you actually jumped on to my next question. So great. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know that both of you have a strong commitment to to mentoring women to succeed in, in a gender biased world. And, you know, my, my first thought is, is like, well, why can't you let me be me and you be you? And, and you know, can't we just get along and, and, and work together? 
why is is mentoring so critical? And you know, you mentioned that male mentors are very important. You know, why is why is that very important? Well, first of all, there aren't enough senior women to go around, so that. Uh, if the men don't uh, participate, then the senior women are put in a in a very uncomfortable situation where somehow they're supposed to be giving more and more of their time and the men don't have to uh, contribute any of their time to the advancement of, um, you know, half the population. Uh, but the other part of it is that because of gender-biased workplaces, what happens is there are stereotypes and biases that we have about women, men, leaders, families, and women and men hold women and men to these stereotypes. And so one of the issues with uh, mentoring is that we need to be certain that men and women can feel comfortable in providing support to each other. Let me jump in there, Marlene. You you mentioned, why can't I just be me and you be you? I think that gets us into uh, what we think about as another stereotype, and that's the authenticity stereotype. The very notion that we are a particular kind of way, and that's the only way we are, that we are one sort of person. Well, we aren't one sort of person. We are lots of sorts of persons. We can be assertive. We can be kind. We can be welcoming. We can be standoffish. They're just all sorts of ways that we can be. And mentoring is often a way of advising people as to how and when to adopt particular sorts of behavioral patterns, not to change who they are, not to be a phony, not to act in an inauthentic way, uh, because it's always important to hold on to your core values. But to adopt a style, a presence, a way of proceeding, that is going to be effective in the situation that you're in. And men very often can see, because they're often up at the top, they can see what is working, who's advancing, who isn't advancing, and why that is. So they bring a valuable piece of insight into those relationships. Do the people that are, are the mentors do they benefit as much as the mentees when there's a mix where it's men mentoring women? Do the mentors learn as well? It, absolutely. It turns out that in much of the mentorship research that the mentor benefits very often as much, if not more so, from the relationship. It's not just a one-way helping the mentee. And in fact, the way to have a successful relationship is really for the mentee to find ways to help the mentor, to make them look good. And it becomes a relationship that can be very effective for many years. It doesn't have to be, a, it can be a short-term relationship, but it can be a way of sort of building your dream team to, um, to help each other uh, for many years to come. Great. 
I want to talk about uh, the Mansfield rule in, in law firms, which law firms see as the uh, next generation of the uh, National Football League's Rooney rule. So just to, just to clarify, I want to say that the Mansfield rule is named for the first woman to be admitted into the practice of law, Arabella Mansfield. And this rule certifies that law firms consider at least 30% women, LGBTQ+, and minority lawyers for significant leadership roles. What's your position on the on the Mansfield rule in firms that have or have not necessarily signed on to it? Well, if you look at the success of the Rooney rule in the NFL, it doesn't say that you have to hire that person or you have to put them in that senior leadership role, but by just giving them an opportunity to be considered miraculously improves the odds. I feel very strongly that the Mansfield rule modifying the Rooney rule is great. It really does allow people to be considered and at the table in a way that they have not been considered previously because people tend to favor people who look like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things I did want to talk to you about uh, with that is that does these uh, rules like the like the Mansfield rule, um, I know you've talked before about affinity bias where people are naturally drawn to other people that look and act like them. Does the Mansfield rule help to eliminate this uh, or at least, I guess, balance out the affinity bias? What it tends to do is not eliminate it because we're ne- we're we're human beings. we're right. we're always going to be more comfortable. Uh, working with people who are like us. What it's going to do is it's going to get in the way of that preference from affecting career decisive decisions so that when we have the Mansfield rule in place, then men's affinity bias is interrupted to a significant extent. They don't have a choice, but they've got to consider some number of women for that position. They've got to consider some number of women to be on that team or to be promoted or to visit the client. So what it does is it puts people in somewhat uncomfortable situations of having to recognize that the world is going to be better when we work with people who are not like us. Mm-hmm. That there is a win-win possibility out there for all of us if we will just simply broaden our field of vision. An interesting blog post on your website is one where you discuss managing the impressions that you make. Now, I, I know communication is a big area of focus for both of you. And, and what particularly struck me is that in order for a woman to appear as a leader, she will need to pivot in a global environment. So she may need to be authoritative in the U.S., ability to work across differences in Japan, for example. You know, some of the behaviors that you highlight seem complementary, but others really seem opposite. How can a woman manage this? And do men have to do the same thing? Well, basically, Al and I refer to that as the Goldilocks dilemma, which is that women very often, if we're nice and kind and sweet, then we're perceived as nice and kind and sweet, but we're not considered to be leaders or competent. 
but if we're two, you do this and you do that. And Marlene and Greg were meeting at five o'clock and, um, you know, we're going to talk about the conclusions. Both of your hairs are going to catch fire. Who does she think she is telling me what to do? And so women are perceived as too hard or too soft. And so impression management is really what the social scientists refer to as a way of managing the impressions that other people have of you. And so women need to be able to demonstrate that we are nice and kind and sweet at the same time as we're competent. And so men don't have that same pressure, although there are certain behaviors that men are expected to uh, engage in. And so there is some balancing, but the Goldilocks dilemma is really a women's issue where in a gender biased workplace, we're supposed to be demonstrating that we're not just competent, but that we're also nice. We could talk for hours about how unfair that is, but uh, the, the points that Al has made previously about how we all have different characteristics is really what it's about. We all, when we wake up in the morning and we go to our closet, we know we're going to dress differently if we're going to uh, an important meeting or if we're going to be going to the beach. We know if we're going to dress differently, if we're going to a fancy black tie event, or if we're going to a picnic. And so we have these characteristics, and we need to manage the impressions that other people have of us by deciding which characteristic we're taking out of the closet at which moment in time. It turns out that that's really what impression management is about, it is managing, and that's really Al and I speaking together, is managing impressions. It's not something that men find as much of an anathema as women do, but primarily this authenticity issue that Marlene, you brought up before, Al referred to it as a stereotype because there's thousands of articles about women keep your authenticity and there's not one article about men you need to be authentic. And so what's that about? What that's about is it's another way of holding women back. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important when we compare men and women, what we're talking about is achieving positions of leadership. And men don't need to worry nearly as much about impression management because the stereotypes that are associated with men are the same ones that are associated with leaders. And that's true regardless of where, where you are in the world. So that when men behave, if they are behaving in a typically masculine manner, they are doing what is expected. The problem, the impression management dilemma that women have is that if they behave in stereotypically female ways, if they are uh, demure and modest and caring and kind, then they are not seen as leaders. And so they've got a far trickier problem than men do. And that's true whether those women are in the United States or China or Japan or India uh, or the EU. Mm -hmm. There are many very successful women who are Intim they're tagged as intimidating simply because they are successful in what they do. And, and that, that's by men and women. So how do you, you know, and, and because of that, 
there's problems in terms of, of you know, interacting with others in, in the workplace. So how do you get around that? Well, you use the word intimidated. I thought you were searching for the word bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> my intimidating is your bitch, maybe. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let me respond to your point because when I joined my law firm, uh, I joined as a, a, a full partner with a corner office and my own clients. And the reaction to me was, well, obviously she has to be nasty. And so I get a new assistant and she comes, she's in training and she comes into my office and her eyes are the size of saucers. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, I met the secretarial coordinator and she asked me who I'm working for. And I said, oh, I'm working for Andy Kramer. And she said, oh, you're working for the dragon lady. (laughs) What? I had to go, I had to go to the dictionary and look at dragon lady. I didn't know what that was. It was not, it's not nice. No, 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 it's not. um, So... The assumption was, well, if I have my own clients and and I have a corner office, then I'm not a nice person. That plays itself out. And so a woman who is successful is very often assumed to be too assertive, too aggressive, too this, too that. When in reality, she's just like the guys trying to get the job done. But because it's a woman, the expectation is that she's out of stereotype and therefore there's something wrong with her. But while that is often the case, I don't want to leave this point without recognizing that there are some nasty women bosses. Just like nasty men. But there are nasty men bosses as well. And because there are so many fewer women bosses, when we find uh, the nasty ones, it's far easier to ascribe that characteristic to women bosses generally, whereas we don't do it with men. The other thing to keep in mind is that when women are in leadership, they're under enormous pressure to conform to the masculine norms that are dominant in their organization. They are expected to behave just like the senior men. And they are judged and evaluated and promoted themselves based not on how nice and kind and sweet they are to the people below them, but how tough and driven and competitive they are. And so women very often will behave in ways that appear to other people not to be particularly nice simply because they are under such pressure to conform to the expectations that are foisted on them in masculine environments. This kind of reminds me, this whole talk that, that we're doing reminds me of uh, something that we brought up a couple of episodes ago, and it was more based on race. But I think I think we can parallel this to gender in that Law firm spaces are male-dominated spaces and that women are being judged in male-dominated spaces. And if everyone can recognize that and adjust behavior, at least identify that, I think that that would go a long way in helping people understand why you're having, why people have different views given the same uh, situation. 
clearly, and um, they're masculine workplaces, but they're also predominantly white masculine. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, the the saying that we used a couple episodes ago was about a journalist who was uh, a black woman being judged in white male space, yeah. and and having to come to grips with things that a white male may may not even think twice about. Sure. It, it was very profound and and affected someone who was not white and male. So. No question about it. Another one of your blog posts highlighted that millennial men are more likely to be uncomfortable than older men with women holding positions of power and public uh, prominence. It seems kind of backwards. Uh, you know, everyone seems to think that the younger generation gets it, that they're the they're ones that are going to, that you know. they're going to, yeah, they're going to fix all these issues. But you specifically point out that there's even more of a discomfort with uh, younger millennial men uh, with women in power. I'm going to say one thing and then I'm going to turn it over to Al, which is that my my beloved grandmother would have said, from your mouth to God's ears. (laughs) No question but that many studies are out there that show that the millennial generation, the younger people are more diverse, they're more open to diversity, they're more tolerant. Certainly, they are more accepting of LGBT people, and to a degree that that's true. What we're talking about, though, is the acceptance by these men of women into significant positions of leadership and power. What the studies show, we didn't make this up, what the studies show is that younger men are less comfortable with women being senators, being chief executive officers, being president, being engineers, being their direct supervisors, than our older men. And so the question is, why is that? Why is this open, diverse, very uh, enlightened generation, why do they feel this way? Well, we don't know the answer to that question, but we've got a theory. And the theory is that women are knocking the socks off of the men in colleges and universities and graduate schools. Hmm. The women are in the majority. They are outperforming the men. They are getting better grades, and they are doing more outstanding work. And when these men get out, They've had enough. They say, all right, those women have been on top long enough. Now I'm in an environment in which I'm the in-group, and I'll be damned if I'm going to bring those women up to where I am. I don't want anything to do with them. That's really interesting, and I wonder if, if sort of the impact of Title IX has sort of anything to do with it in terms of women and their their attitudes towards success. I've read articles where that that's had a, a marked impact on sort of women and their confidence and doing things. So if you have women sitting there knocking the socks off of piano, confident, well-educated, talented women knocking the socks off of, of, you know, everybody, you know, as you're sort of highlighting, you know, that maybe that's enough of a threat for, for men to, to behave that way. Well, it turns out, uh, yes. And it turns out that the studies also show that women 
and men start their careers with the same ambitions, the same confidence, the same expectations, the same views of their careers, but three, four, five years out, women have cut their expectations back. And it's not because of any changes to themselves, but it's to their reactions to the workplace environment. Hmm. And that's really why we feel that it's so important and in the context of both of our books to try to move the needle, to try to change the way people think about this because organizations that are diverse tend to have better ideas, they tend to satisfy their customers, their clients better, and they make more money. And so we need to turn this into a win-win situation instead of a, it's my turn to be in the in-group, so I'm not going to go out of my way to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's not you, it's the workplace. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. What a, what a great title for a book. Yeah. yeah imagine. <laughs> And speaking of which, I'd like you both to tell us a little bit about your two books. You know, how did it, how did it feel as authors writing each of those? Was it, was it similar? And, you know, what are the key messages that you're trying to impart to the audience in each of them? Well, the first book, Breaking Through Bias, was an outgrowth of a lot of the work that I had done in the context of learning how women and men truly do communicate differently in the in the workplace, not because of inherent natural differences, but the way we're socialized and the way gender-biased workplaces feed into the sorts of stereotypes and, 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 and biases that flow from them. And so, when I decided that I wanted to write a book, I went to Al and I asked him because I knew uh, if he would join, join me and we'd do it together because I knew that We've collaborated on all sorts of legal projects over the years and uh, thought that the two of us would be stronger than just uh, me by myself. And that turned out to be the case. The second book really was an outgrowth of the first book. So It's Not You, It's the Workplace, Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias that Built It. It turns out that when we started talking about breaking through bias, women would come up to us and say, I, I, you're right about this gender bias, but I, I kind of got this figured out and, you know, the tips you have in your book are really very helpful. I work fine with the guys. I just hate working with the women. The women are nasty and evil and the men are just great. And in pressing them, you know, how are the women treating you differently from the men? It turns out that the women don't treat them any differently. It's just that the women are the boss and they don't expect the women to be the boss. They want the woman to be their mother or their big sister or their friend or to cut them some slack. And that's only one piece of the issues that we worked on and uh, researched. But that was what prompted the start of It's Not You, It's the Workplace. So the first book is directed at what women, men, organizations can do to advance women's careers. The second book is really about what women, men, and organizations can do to improve the relationships between women in the workplace. Because what we found is when women can support each other, when they can become advocates for one another, 
when they are comfortable speaking out on behalf of other women, then all the women in that organization do better. They are more at home, they are more satisfied with their jobs, and they find uh, life at the office more enjoyable, more satisfied, more fulfilling. So the books are complementary. They're both about bias, they're both about stereotypes, but they're about how they impact different relationships in different ways. Well, I know we could talk for three more hours on this. Truly, and so I, really I, good. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us. Can you point uh, the listeners to your website and where that they can buy the two books that you have? Well, the, our website is andyandale.com. And to confuse everybody, I spell Andy, A-N-D-I-E. So it's A-N-D-I-E-A-N-D-A-L.com. And we have blogs and assessments and, and surveys and things on our website. The books are available on Amazon and from local retailers. They're easy enough to get it from. I, in fact, I saw Walmart and Target and Amazon and Barnes & Noble. and Everybody's got it. And okay. so um, we're very excited about the launch of our new book and um, the continued uh, interest people have in breaking through bias. So we'd love to have your listeners go out there and buy our books and then let us know what you think about it. Sounds good. Well, yes, absolutely. Andy Kramer and Al Harris, again, thank you very much for talking with us today. Yes, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Well, we've enjoyed it. Thank you for having us. Marlene, I, again, just as I said, going into this, I, I went through a wide range of emotions uh, on this one. So what, what a pleasure having Andy and Al on the show. Yeah, and I, I really appreciated the dual perspective that we got from both of them. Um, you know, I think that that was something that's, that's unique. And I, I think they really highlighted how important it is to have this conversation between both men and women in order to address the problem. <laughs> Yeah, I can understand why it is that sometimes men feel uncomfortable talking about this, but I think uh, Andy said it best with, uh, hey, get over it. Mm-hmm. Get get involved in, in the situation. You know, it's, and, it's, it's important enough to be a little uncomfortable. Absolutely. And I think that there are some very toxic people out there in, in the workplace, and we need to feel comfortable in making sure that we're not just Making, we need to make them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, and I, I think it's also the fact that uh, w- one part when they were talking about it can't be the responsibility of the of the person who's being bullied in the workplace to be the one that has to stand up for it. Everyone else should should be able to feel comfortable in standing up against this type of, of behavior. Agreed, agreed. We'd like to thank Andy Kramer and Al Harris again for joining us today. So go out there and check out their website, andyandal.com, for more information and links to purchase their new book, It's Not You, It's the Workplace. Great title. Yeah. Also, there are these wonderful worksheets, Marlene, that are on the website, and it gives you question guides to help you with a group discussion on the issues covered in the book. So if you want to get a book club together, yeah, they, I was just thinking that. they've got things already set up for you. Yeah, perfect. 
Also, if you have a good story to tell about what it is that your family thinks you do, be sure to let us know by leaving a voicemail at 713-487-7270 or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to share your story in an upcoming episode. Please take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. Yeah, it makes me very happy when I see some new reviews out there. And we really want Greg to be happy. Uh, Yeah, I know I do. (laughs) If you have comments or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at at GabeHourM or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270 or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. I think I just said that. Don't forget to share your family stories. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, and thanks, Marlene. I will talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.